0: This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dowling, Head of Research and CIO at FEG, an institutional investment consultant and OCIO firm serving nonprofits across the US. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insights on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. We are excited to have Jeffrey Sherman on the FUG Insight Bridge. We at FUG think of him as the Deputy Chief Investment Officer of DoubleLine, where he also serves on DoubleLine's Executive Management and Fixed Income Asset Allocation Committees. However, if you're a podcast fan, you may think of him as the host of the very popular Sherman Show. Either way, you will be entertained and educated. Today's topics include podcasts, math, macro, and the fixed income markets. Jeffrey, welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. Thanks for having me, Greg. So here at FEG, we think of you more as the double line guy. But for many of our listeners, you may be
1: the Sherman Show guy. What made you start your own podcast? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one because... We were talking about ways of trying to, you know, really enhance the visibility into double-line employees. And there's a, a lot of folks weren't familiar with a lot of our portfolio management staff. And so we started the podcast as more of, I'll call it a cult of personality type of show, right? Get to know some of the leaders within the firm that, that maybe our listeners don't meet with very frequently. And understand the depths of the knowledge base, the breadth across the sectors of the markets we cover. And then along the way, we started just trying to get other guests. And so it wasn't really my goal to start a podcast. It was someone else's idea internally. They just said, hey, do you want to do it? And I said, sure, I'll I'll jump on that one. Uh, Let's try it. And initially, it was a debacle. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. I cut all the guests off. I talked too much. It, it, it was more truly the Sherman show and the guests weren't really coming through. So I learned things over time and, and how to listen. Um, you know, that, that's a good life skill. But um, now it's become, you know, where I like to get a lot of external guests on there, people that I find interesting people. I follow their research and trying to shed light into how we think through markets. And some of that is from external guests. You've been on the Sherman Show as well. I have, right? Um, and we like to get all kinds of perspectives. We get CIO types, we get research analysts, we get macro thinkers, strategists, and what we're trying to do is just bring a well-rounded thing of financial markets and try to make it interesting, right? And we know that uh, the, the fixed income markets can be boring.
0: They are not boring this year.
1: That is true. You know, there, there's just a, a a lot of things. I think that there's insights that we want to bring to the table, and so. In general, what it's just turned into is just, you know, us trying to have a little bit of fun with things, but also bring things we think are topical. And so our clients ask us, you know, they'll send us kind of ideas as well, and we try to capitalize on that. So just trying to bring a well-rounded way of thinking about financial markets, the consultant perspective, institutional thinkers, and again, strategists, analysts, and and macro thinkers across the street.
0: That's great. So besides me, who have been
1: some of your favorite guests? Oh, well, you were number one, of course. I really enjoy talking with Professor Schiller. I've had him on a couple of times. We have this little bit at the end we call Sherman Says, and he he called it the uh, the verbal Roshar chest, right, of trying to think through people's brains. And, you know, only he can come up with those kind of ideas. And so I always enjoy my conversations with him to start with. But, you know, guys that are just legends in the Bond world, like, like a Jim Grant, right? doesn't really run money, but he's just a great thinker about rates, markets. Um, so some of these guys are just my heroes too, right? People I've followed. There's still a list of a few I'd like to have out there. Guys like David Zervos, someone who's been a strategist to come in our office for a decade. We always take a meeting with him. So it's like, if I enjoy having those conversations, I want to bring those to ultimately our listeners. Those are some great guests, for sure. So question, is
0: Sam the Ed McMahon
1: of The Sherman Show? <laughs> uh, Sam is actually the brains behind The Sherman Show. So I'm just the the face and and not a good one. That's why I don't like the video. I prefer this audio format. A, a face for podcasting. A face for podcasting. Unfortunately, now they're all recorded with video as well. So they're on the YouTube as well. You know, Sam is, is really the backbone of it he does the research. A lot of people say, well, what does he do? He just comes in and says, hey, hey, he asks a few questions here and there, but he actually is what makes the Sherman Show run. And Sam, as I've been telling our listeners, has been cheating on me for the last year and a half. He started his own podcast with another one of my colleagues named Jeff Mayberry. And so they put out a weekly macro podcast of so summary of macro and markets. He's really busy behind the scenes with all of this. So... I don't know what Ed McMahon's role specifically was, but I think that uh, Sam deserves a lot of credit. And uh, I've tried to rename it The Sam Lau Show, but he wants none of that. I love it. All right. So you have a math background. In fact, you've
0: even taught math at different points in time. So when I was on your podcast, I made the term of art comment of bond math. And you yelled at me. You said Uh
1: math is math.
0: But do you feel there's some sort of elegant connection between... Math and fixed income?
1: Yeah, at its core. I mean, when you think about analyzing fixed income, it's looking at cash flow streams, and they tend to be a bit more certain in the fixed income market. And by definition, it's fixed income, right? You think about that uh, versus something like an equity which is a residual cash flow so uh, the modeling is a little bit easier but the problem with it is is that you know people get wedded to models right and so we're taught academically that this is de facto the way to look at things and we know that analyses are more squishy out there so it's not just understanding math but it's also understanding psychology it's understanding kind of money flow in the market i like to use the analogy that No, the fundamentals will play out long term, right? Markets can get overvalued. They can stay undervalued for long periods of time. But typically, fundamentals come home to roost. Technicals are how you trade. This is entry level in markets. You look at charts. There's there's different ways of thinking. There's a lot of technicians out there that live and die by this. But what drives the directionality of markets is money flow. And, you know, we started off the conversation saying that the fixed income markets haven't been boring. Why? There's been an evaporation of money flow in the space. There's been a fear of of rising interest rates. That fear has been realized and it's feeding upon itself. And so you have to bring all of these things together when thinking about analyzing whether it's a security, trying to blend things together at the portfolio level. And so I'm sorry you thought I yelled at you (laughs) uh, when you said that, but but I think it's just my personality. Sometimes I, I get a little animated. You know, people do always use that phrase bond math. And my sales team will will tell you as well that during retreats, I always tell them it's not bond math. It's just simple math. And at the end of the day, it is algebra. <laughs> Hopefully it uh, doesn't scare too many people away. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is is think through, you know, the different scenarios out there. And, and a lot of it is mathematically based. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, one of our,
0: uh, our quants has said to me that, all models are wrong, some are useful. And so kind of knowing both the art and science is is really important.
1: And that, and that's important because as young analysts come into here too. And you know, we all have that hubris in school, right? I mean, most most of us were probably in the topper parts of our class to this. We've had success out there. And so you there is a bit of arrogance with the model. Like I can model that. I know how to use Excel. And and I love when when analysts come in with a few years' experience and say, I'm an expert in Excel. I'm like, yeah, no, you're not an expert in Excel. I guarantee you are not. Let's go to the computer right now, yeah. right? And there's no way you are because Excel is such a powerful beast, right? Now everybody uses databases and the like as well, like the SQL servers. But it is pretty amazing that you know there's this hubris of the models because it's what we're taught, right? Right, and that it has to behave this way. And so I think there's a little bit of unteaching and unlearning of some of those things. But I, I love the quote from your quan.
0: Yeah, it's funny. you are giving an estimate, and it's just a. Like guesstimate. Yep, and someone takes something out to like the fourth or fifth decimal point.
1: <laughs> right, we we had that internally where that our CPI model was out to five decimal places. I'm like, yeah. Do you think the Fed cares about the third or fourth decimal? They're looking at the number in front of the decimal right now. It is funny we get that level of precision, but as you said, it's a guesstimate. But people want to pin you down on a point estimate. Now, I'm now getting a little nerdy for a second, but really there should be an interval around it, right? There should be the confidence interval. So these are the ranges you're thinking about. And so, you know, especially in the fixed income market, wants to pin us down, well, where where are rates going? So, you know, the, the way I kind of think about the rates market today is that I don't know exactly where they're going. I feel that we're getting close to the end of this rate rise cycle and it's correlated to the Fed. And I think the Fed's getting closer to the end. If you believe the dot plots, and I think that seems reasonable for where they Should go and says that we get maybe to four and a half Fed funds rate. Maybe it's four and a quarter, four and a half. Maybe it pushed a little higher. So that implies the two years should be what 475, maybe a five. And that's probably the height of the cycle, assuming that the Fed doesn't push it farther. And if they do push it farther quickly, uh, I think it breaks. So, you know, give me 475 to five on twos, curve days inverted. So that means, you know, we probably have 50 60 inversion. Therefore, 10 year probably trades for 10 to 435. And we're going to be wrong right but you know the thing is i think we're getting close there and therefore that means that you probably should be owning a little more duration you should be owning some of these offsets other things i know we'll get into that but we're gonna to get into that yeah later. but but that's how i think about things is that everyone's to pin you down exactly what is the 10 going to be on this exact date to four decimal places and you're an idiot because you didn't nail it
0: i love it i love it taking a step back we're going to cover all kinds of market stuff but
1: what got you into the investment world? So how did you go from math to investing? It, it's not a great story, but uh, it is a story. So <laughs> I was wandering aimlessly through the world of math and I didn't know what to do. And I got a degree in applied mathematics and I was just looking for the next step and trying to figure it out and didn't really get a job. So I decided I was gonna stay in academia. So I entered a PhD program in applied mathematics and I went to Florida State where they are really big in thermodynamics.
0: I was going to say football.
1: Yeah, they're really good at football. Uh, the year they were there, they won- I was there, they won the national championship. So I, I had nothing to do with that, just spurious correlation, right? Uh, when I was there, my, my application was more statistics and probability on the applied side, not physics. And they threw me in like a fifth semester, like dynamics class. And I didn't know how to draw the vectors. I didn't know how, to, I'm like, I couldn't model, I could do the math once you could set it up. And so I was struggling um, with that a little bit. And what I was good at was kind of the more the calculus-based math. And so I stumbled upon something called numerical analysis. And numerical analysis is a fancy way of saying solving problems with a computer that don't have closed-in solutions. You can't just write down the solution. You have to kind of iterate to get to it. And that was an interest of mine. And that applies very well to the financial world. Here I was, you know, looking to get a Ph.D. and ultimately probably become some form of professor or something on that range. And I was reading that these people on Wall Street made money, right? They made a lot more than a professor did, and it took a lot shorter time. And at Florida State, they had a financial math program. So this was kind of burgeoning financial engineering type of world. I decided that I wanted to pursue the financial engineering path. And so I ended up transferring out back to to Los Angeles in Claremont. And so I got my uh, my master's degree there and, you know, just found the applications very interesting. And so it was solving problems with the computers, doing the things I really enjoyed doing. I got an internship at at tcw i worked in the analytics team for a while and then um, there was this uh gentleman that ran a fixed income group there named jeffrey gunlock and everybody was enamored with him and never heard of him he was a a small player in the game he was someone that i i just admired there and i did a lot of analytics for that team and ultimately you know got to that team and and started to work on it Uh, again i'd say it's stumbling and bumbling uh, to get there and um you know it's been a good career so far. That's a good story. It's not not that bad. I wasn't like seven years old reading the Wall Street Journal, looking at stocks. I mean, I didn't know what a stock was, you know, until I was in grad school.
0: I love hearing people's journeys and stories because, you know, some people took the graduation money or bar mitzvah money and they're investing in stocks and they, they wanted to do that since they were seven years old. Other people kind of stumble upon it. Now there's, there's many paths,
1: right? And, I had student loans. I needed to pay them. I was looking for a way to pay them. And uh, I didn't know that forgiveness was coming 20 years <laughs> later, um, you know, and I probably wouldn't be eligible these days for it anyway. But I looked at myself being in debt, trying to get educated, and it was a way of uh, trying to pay that down. And it's been interesting, you know, I mean, it's no year is the same as, you know, in markets. And I find it a challenge and, and every environment's different. And we're always evolving and thinking about markets. And so the, that's to me what's very interesting. <laughs>
0: So how do we get more younger people interested in STEM and particularly the, the M of STEM math? feels like we have a real shortage in people interested in this. How do we make it more approachable, more interesting?
1: I, I think we have to teach it differently, too. I, I mean, there's there has to be an evolution of it that people need to see the practicality of it. I think also we should teach personal finance. That's something that is not taught. My nephew is living with us right now. You know, he's taking a personal finance class now because he said, I want, to, I want to take finance. I said, you should take personal finance. You don't need to know about the macro economy. You need to have, know what a checking account is. I'll start there. I think those things are important, too. But understand there's just applications of it. People say, I'll never use algebra. I use algebra all the time. I think it's just, you know, trying to find different ways of teaching it. When I was teaching, I always try to think that there's different kinds of learners. You have your visual learner, so you need to draw the pictures, try to show and illustrate with a graphic. You've got your aoral listener. They need to hear it, right? Some people need to write it down. That's why you take notes off the chalkboard as well. And you you got to try to get different perspectives to every single problem. And if you can do that, you can try to glean more interest in the space. And I think we need to promote science. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. And I know we've had some arguments about science, not you and I, but as a society of is science right or wrong. It's an experiment at the end of the day. That's what science is. So I think it's just trying to make it interesting again. There was that, uh, what was it, the uh, Apollo 11 movie that came out? I watched it on a plane one day. You know, I, I didn't get to see the IMAX version or anything of it. And I was like, wow, you know, just sitting on the plane watching this, just like, how can you not be amazed by what these people did 60 years ago, or I guess it's 55 years ago. And it's just so amazing to see that. And I think, you know, trying to stimulate that, maybe that's what some of the fascination with Elon Musk is, right? The SpaceX stuff. It's, it's important to engage with young people and, and tell them that there are these other careers. You don't have to be a police officer, a doctor, a lawyer. You can be a scientist and it's well respected and you're going to contribute to society. I think the STEM stuff is very important. I think we need more engineers. Maybe we don't need more finance people, but we definitely need more people in the STEM space. And I think it just starts at an early age and engaging people and showing them there are things you can do with it. probably have too many finance people, lawyers, and podcasters. Some of us double dip in in those spaces as well. And everybody told me when I was getting a math degree, oh, you can do anything you want with a math degree. And I'm like, okay, I graduated. Where's the job? What can I do? I think it's important to show people that there are many applications to it. And again, they're well-respected careers. So
0: math is interesting. Markets are very interesting. And usually, we want to talk about stocks being interesting. And and really fixed income is like a high beta NASDAQ stock right now. The rate volatility is crazy. So, you know, everybody talks about 94 being a if you live through 94 in the fixed income world. I think that didn't the ag finish down by two and a half or something like
1: that. Well, it had it had this uh, weird component that we haven't had for a while back in nineteen eighty four, It was called yield. yield yeah. It had yield going into the rate. I'm rise. not familiar with that term. <laughs> If you've been in the markets for the last you know eight or nine years you haven't you haven't really seen much of it and people forgot about duration and what it matters when you compare 2022 to 1994 what you see is that the rate hike environment is going to be faster not only the pace with what it, the magnitude as well and what i'd like to kind of show people as of late is that if you think about the previous rate hike cycle and that was a yellen and powell combination it took three years to get the market to two and a half on the upper end of the branch. They did that in like four meetings, four meetings over the course of like five and a half months. When you ask about the Fed credibility, they're trying to instill this concept that they have credibility, they're going to be an inflation fighter. I think they're being true to their word. Now, is it reckless? Well, I don't know. I mean, the problem is they waited too long, right? And so there's a lot of Fed critics out there. And, and you know, we, we're one of them at times. But look, the, the, the Fed is doing what they think is the right thing. And, you know, look, they were too easy for too long. So living through this year, it, it is going to be the worst year. I mean, unless we get a 150 or so basis point rally, which none of us really see happening over the next two and a half months, it's definitely going to be the worst year on record. It's going to be the worst year on record by like a thousand basis points. It's the function of just where yield started. Uh, The duration move is obviously hurt. And that rate volatility has led to volatility in all markets. Whether you're an equity investor, whether you're a credit investor, you have to watch the rates market right now because, you know, when rate volatility is there, it leads to spread volatility. It leads to repricing. I mean, when you think about multiples in the market, they're correlated to real yields the yield relative to inflation. So you can think about the tips market. If you look at where the two-year real yield was at the beginning of the year, it was like minus 250 basis points, minus 250 basis points. It was maybe 275. I'm losing, losing track of it at this point. Yesterday, it was 185 positive. That magnitude of move is what has reset markets. And you see what's going on in the UK where, you know, they, they were trying to go back to the policies of we're going to run big deficits, right? We're going to do tax cuts for corporations. We're going to do it for the, the wealthy. We're going to have trickle down economics. And the market revolted. The market said, no, we're inflation fighting now. We're not going back to our ways that we were doing there. And so this is one of those kind of ring the bell moments. It's a reset. And it's saying, look, we're going to all have to get our houses in order in order to fight inflation. Now, will we go back to those policies? Potentially. But I think they look different going forward because I don't think we're going back to those low yields that we saw unless we get inflation massively contained. And you have to think about what was the catalyst for having that kind of disinflationary environment. And a lot of it was globalization. We used cheap labor from other countries. We got some, you know, as essentially equi- equilibrium in what labor costs were around the globe. And that made for cheap goods. Unless we go back to that and we have a new area to kind of, I won't say exploit the labor, but have cheap labor, we probably don't get that impact again. And so I think it is a reset in the markets. And the good news is, is that, you know, as a fixed income investor, yield is what kind of drives return, right? You can start with that. And if you look over a couple of time period, it tends to be, you know, the bulk of your return comes from the yield. And guess what? There's yield. What everybody was looking for, it's everywhere. Greg, there's yield outside your office right now. If, if we wouldn't look, we would find it. Just everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's yeah, everywhere. It's everywhere. It's funny, you use this chart,
0: and I've seen you use it in webinars, and I've seen others use it as well. But the starting yield, and then you kind of look at six months return or a year later, it's, it's all yield. So it's it's a good starting point, but does anything matter other than inflation?
1: Right now, no, because inflation is what's dictating interest rate policy. And until it gets curtailed... and. Can the Fed do it? A year ago, when we had this inflation, we were told it was transitory. It was pretty easy to blame, you know, that there was a supply chain problem. We're all sitting at home. I know you guys didn't do as much, but let's say the globe practically was, you know, working from home. There was a huge increase in demand for durable goods. And we see that through all the price series. But what happened is that the Fed didn't really admit that, you know, there was a problem. And then when they finally got around to admitting it, they're saying, well, you know, our rate hikes can't produce more semiconductors right? We can't get more dishwashers in here. We can't control the supply chain. But now they're trying to contain the demand side of the equation. And look, borrowing costs are one way to do so. And so when you say, does anything matter besides it? I think the volatility in markets will not calm down until inflation comes down. And when inflation comes down, it will sell the Fed down. That will bring rate volatility down. And that's when you know things will kind of settle into a range. But until then, we're kind of in no man's land. The good news is we saw PPI data come out today, it's cooling a little bit, You know, it's running month over month to like 30 basis points. So if you take the last like three months and annualize it, it's maybe like a 4% rate, those are input costs, therefore that, that should help CPI. But then we have the negatives, right? The negatives of CPI is that the housing market component, big piece of core CPI is going to continue to press up because it's a very lag time series. So that's the challenge that the Fed has is that from the services side of the equation, Rent, owners' equivalent rent, are going to continue to press that series to be at uncomfortable levels. Now, I've read a lot too recently about there's going to be the healthcare adjustment coming in. Healthcare is going to be a drag. That kind of brings things down, and that's how really a lot of economists get to there being like a 2.9 or 3% inflation rate next year. Uh, internally, we think it probably has a floor handle on it. But four handles way, way superior to what we're seeing with the eight handle. And by the way, you can buy two-year treasuries that have a four handle on it. So there's ways of getting real yield with a safe investment. But also the credit markets, as we talked about, they've repriced. So you can own credit. If you think that you know we have a relatively soft landing, notice I didn't say we're having massive growth. Even the Fed themselves say it. There's nothing wrong with owning some of that credit even if you think we're going to have a hard landing, there's going to be winners still on the credit side. So if we can buy credit today that has, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 yields on it, and these aren't extremely risky positions, and you compare them, with let's just say the long bond, right? Yields 395 today. And if bad things happen, what do you think the long bond does, Greg? It probably rallies, right? It's down 37% year to date, we could probably get some of that back it could easily move 20 points. 20 points, but my credit now is already priced, you know, at like an 80 low 80 dollar price, right? It depends on the credit you own, but credits, you know, 70, 80 handle. So is it gonna go down another 20 points? Probably not. By the way, it carries, it carries at nine, 10%. Here we are with this math thing again, right? <laughs> but you put this all together, you can get a portfolio at 6 7% that has deflation risk built in on buying the long side. And we've been adding duration. We added duration yesterday, by the way.
0: I was going to ask that. I mean, if I looked at anybody's core fixed income portfolio, just any you, your competitors, I could say like one did well, one did poorly. And I could just say, well, it's duration. I mean, that's That's the only thing you had to know. It was like, all right, they had to be shorter duration. They were longer duration. Those who have won have been shorter duration. So you're saying maybe now's the time to inch back. Are you adding a lot of duration or just just going from really short duration to more medium?
1: So in the last six weeks, we've added roughly, I would say we've added 0.65 years. That's a big move for us. The first one was about a quarter year extension. We did another 0.15. We did another quarter yesterday. And we just have targets we're working through and I won't, I won't give all our secrets away on those targets and and they're charts and stuff that, that again the technicals are telling us where to get there, there's bond math behind it yeah, yeah there, there's some hocus pocus stuff going on and just drawing lines on charts and stuff as well and it, there's a lot of experience around the table of thinking through all this you no know, the point is is that we were about a year and a half short of the ag and we're like you know ma- uh, inside of half a year from the ag now we want to get closer to having higher quality Throughout the year, you know, we've increased credit quality. We started to extend a little bit early in the year. We were very underweight coming into the year. That was early. And then we, we were very patient. We didn't buy into these rallies that we saw in rates. We were listening to the Fed. We were listening to what they were saying. Even though the market got very dovish off the July meeting, right? If you think about what happened there, the market interpreted Jay Powell's comments. He said that we're around neutral. The market heard that and said, oh, the hiking cycle's done. Even though he said we're going to go beyond, we have to be in restrictive territory. It's like the hiking cycle's almost over. Rates rallied like 40 or 50 basis points over like five days. And guess what? All the Fed governors came out and said, you didn't listen. Why? They want to tighten. They want conditions tighter. And if the market rallies on rates, spread compression, equities, it flies in the face of tightening. It's an easier policy. The markets are easier. And so we didn't buy into that. But at this point, I'm looking at the kind of terminal rate. We're seeing where the 2 years. as we're looking at this, Look, we're not going to get it exactly right on the timing. But right now, buying stuff that almost yields four, that gives you deflation protection, gives you recession risk protection, that can easily move 10 to 20 points. And Ten on the 10 year, let's call it 20 on the long bond, maybe it's eight on the 10 year. That's a good offset to owning credit. We did sell some credit at the end of August as well to buy duration. That's how we started funding it. And we've just been extending our kind of treasury book. To do it right now and again i think it's having some of those balances in the portfolio
0: so let's talk a little bit about credit so the feds tools are blunt and they work with a lag right? so they were behind the curve when inflation came up you yep. mentioned the transitory comment yep. now it looks like some inflationary readings are, are kind of leveling off they're not dropping precipitously or anything but they're kind of cooling a bit but we're just going to keep on you know another seventy-five basis points. Then I think they're kind of pricing in another fifty and then another twenty-five. There's such a lag. What in your opinion is the likelihood that we go into a recession? And is it a kind of hard landing or more of a kind of mild recession? Because that's going to play into whether you want to go into credit, what types of credit.
1: That's right. And again, here we are talking about elevated recession risk, and we're still owning the credit, right? And again, it's that dollar price. It's, you know, the, the, the old saying is there's no bad bonds, they're just bad prices, right? And so as long as you're getting paid for the risk you're taking out there, it's fine. And there's going to be some more vol as we push up a little bit more in rates, there's going to be more vol in, in spread product, in credit, product, especially down than credit quality. The likelihood of recession next year is elevated. I won't put a math number on it a probability, but you know it's probably slightly greater than a coin flip. The depth of it is what's going to precipitate credit. The good news about some of the credit markets is that they have hard assets behind them. You you know, we do a lot of stuff in the securitized space where if you have a real asset behind it, you know, that's a lot better than owning unsecured credit. Secondly, uh, if you think about some of the dynamics of the credit markets too, you know, even below investment grade, you know, that that double B area looks pretty attractive it's finding the winners and losers. And it's also understanding how the depths of the recession will be. So look at corporate America, look at what they did post pandemic, increased balance sheet. Yes, there were some stock buybacks and things like that. But there was a bit of deleveraging in the system. They financed, they got their term financing out. So yeah, maybe the bank loan market could be a little more wobbly. But if the bank loan market gets wobbly because the front of the curve is going up, they turn into fixed rate finance and high yield markets. I think corporate CFOs are pretty smart. That's why they have those jobs. They know how to finance. And so when you look at what usually causes big default cycles, it's something called a maturity wall. I mean, there's a lot of debt that has to be refinanced in in a specific market in a given year or at a given point in the year. And that's what can cause kind of more default cycles. If you can just kind of carry for a while, you're paying the coupon. Look, the zombie companies are toast in this environment, which is a good thing, right? We're supposed to flush this out. I think the recession can be mild. And I don't think it's just endemic across all sectors. You're going to have winners and losers in this. The real estate market's probably going to get hit here. Pretty undeniable affordability, just skyrocketed. Unaffordability. Yeah. Uh skyrocketed at this point. And you can just look at the, you know, median house with the 30 year fixed mortgage. I mean, it's essentially up forty five to fifty-five percent, depending on kind of how you how you analyze it. So Ultimately, these things are going to have some pockets that are going to cause challenges. But if you think about what the Fed's doing, they're looking at this lagged variable. But it's not just the inflation they're looking at. They're looking at the labor market. And we know labor is notoriously a lagged market. You know, companies don't lay off employees because they think a recession may come. Look at the layoff announcer. You see these these are companies in trouble. So we know that labor is a very lagged indicator. And you look at things like JOLTS. You know, which is the job openings? They came down by 1.1 million job openings last month. Okay, there's still a gap between the people looking for work. Yeah, you're, you're using your big hands, the gap between it. There's still about four and a half million more jobs available than there are workers looking for work today. The Fed is worried about that. That's an equilibrium that they're talking about in the labor market. So the Fed has this problem because they believe that low unemployment leads to high inflation. It's called the Phillips curve. It's predicated in their Does model. the Phillips curve even work anymore? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Um, and I don't think this is a Phillips curve effect. We printed a lot of money. A lot of people will tell you that it went directly in the pocket of the consumer. Most of it went to actually corporate America. Okay. Um, it did go to the consumer too. It went to both sides. And we increased money supply by like 26% in 2001. So yeah, there's going to be some inflationary pressure. You're seeing it in the labor market. Some of this is t- taste and preferences too, right? COVID changed a lot of things. I think COVID is a pivotal thing in, in in our lifetime. And I think that's a dynamic that changed in markets. People have more choice now. Labor has the upper hand. Labor will have the upper hand until the recession, right? That's the way it always went. When labor kind of starts to win, it wins until the recession. You're talking about the lagged effects of monetary policy. We haven't seen all these rate hikes. It's not really in the system, they're going to deliver 75 because the data tells them to what well, the data set they're looking at. They're going to give you 75 and they're probably going to give you 50 in December. I hope at that point they stop, take a break, pause for a bit, let it work through, take the quarter off, go on a vacation, Jay, you know, go, go take, go take a break. You don't need to do anything. Don't just let it kind of run its course for a little bit. And if you still get pressured then you can, you can continue to amp it up. Can they do
0: that, right? There's just the ghosts of the 70s and 80s where they had to start and stop Fed policy and really took Volcker to you know, yeah. crank it up to break the back of inflation.
1: It just feels like there's pressure not to do this stop-go. Right, so I, I think that's why I think they should just slow down. Here's the thing. Usually when you have a higher inflationary environment, you want your target rate to be above the inflation rate. Yes. Okay. Let's say, is the market right, and our economists right? If we're going to two, nine, four and a quarter is pretty dang restrictive. If the market's wrong and we run at this eight percent rate, and all eyes will be on CPI on Thursday uh, if we run at eight, they've got to continue to hike. What Jade also said in the last press conference is that he wants a positive real yield curve. He was saying the entire curve, so he's trying to bring the entire yield curve up to there. So if we get a convergence, if we get this rollover in inflation where it gets to you know like a four handler five, I think they can. Problem is that you're going to end up probably with something with the low sevens in December. Uh, at least that's our estimate at this point in time. You know if they're at four and a quarter and you know they're trying to get to you know they see seven, they're going to be antsy to want to do some more. So I think it's going to be all eyes on inflation. Hopefully, we stop looking at is year over year. We can look at like six-month numbers and three-month, and that can give them some confidence that it's moving in the right direction. And you see some semblance of that. But we know there's going to be certain parts that are going to have pressure. You're seeing goods inflation start to roll over. Remember, prior to the pandemic, goods were deflationary right there was no there was no pressure on inflation it all came from the services side so that aberration if they can get that down it's about a third of cpi if that gets back into let's just say close to zero that will help significantly but housing right now just the weight in in core cpi times the change is running at two and a half so it's already giving you two and 2.5 percent where they have a target of two now the fed uses core pce they don't use cpi housing's half the weight it is the potential to get there. And that's why I hope that they get to the point where, look, they've set up the market. The market's priced for the hikes, so they'll deliver them, right? And so that's why we're starting to feel like we're getting to the end of this hiking cycle. You're still going to see hikes, but they're priced into the market at this point. So that's why I say I'd hope they could take a pause, let, let the data come through. They said they're going to be data dependent. And Jay is actually admitting it, the last president, we know it operates with a lack. He has the most amount of humility we've seen, right? He's saying we're not very confident in our forecast. We think growth is going to be slow because we're trying to fight this inflation. He's being completely honest with you. People are listening to him. You can actually understand him. I remember doing this
0: long enough where I remember the Alan Greenspan days. and He'd use words where I'd have to be like, "I'm not even sure what
1: that word means." Yeah, the people put together. I forget what what the name of the analysis is, but it, it it's some way of saying the complication of the of the speech, right? And like what the comprehension level is, and you know what you've seen is since Greenspan, Bernanke was pretty much up there too. He had yeah. a, a lot of eloquent, very words. academic. Very academic, just got a Nobel Prize, by the way. <laughs> and a lot of people said, well, it was for wrecking our economy. And and he, he figured out how to solve, how to unwreck the economy. Uh, anyway, um, congratulations, Ben. Uh, you, you deserve it. You're starting to see like the Yellen uh, chair chairmanship and the Powell one is that they're trying to be better communicators. And you know, this is one of the way that they, they've learned to manage policy, is that they learned it from Draghi. We'll do whatever it takes that calmed markets back in what was it, 2014? And that's been a Part of their policy as well, so they have a blunt tool, but they also have this trust us, we're going to take care of it. But they they had egg on their face from the transitory comments. So Jay's told you all year he's going to be an inflation fighter. He's committed. He wants to be Volker. He doesn't want to be Arthur Burns. You know, hopefully we don't have to go to a Volker situation. I think you know if we give it a little bit of time, the inflation will come down. But some of the problem too, Greg, is that if you look at second quarter profit margins, and this just amazed me, they were like forty-year highs. So what you saw was corporate America and businesses, what they ended up doing was raising prices in fear of raising prices. That's the inflation spiral. We saw that happen because they thought labor wages were going up and compensation, input costs. And so they were extrapolating that. So we've already felt a lot of that pain. So that's what gives me a little bit more confidence that we are going to roll over an in inflation. But, you know, look, it's, it's transitory. It's just going to take three years, right? You know, from the point we started to get it. As long as you don't define what transitory is, you're... Yeah. You're, I mean, if we're all long-term investors, three years is simply transitory. Right.
0: You mentioned this earlier, but I, when I think of double line, I mean, you guys really have a specialty in the structured side. You can structure anything. It could be like franchise receivables, but big part of that is the consumer.
1: And so looking at the structured space, what does that tell you about the consumer right now? We're starting to see delinquencies pick up. You're not seeing as much in the housing market because I also, I think people see the gain that they have on their house. The commitment is to pay the mortgage. And why I say that is that back in like 06 and 07, what you saw is that people didn't pay the mortgage. They actually paid their car. And then it's like, nah. okay, well, you need to get somewhere. You, you can sleep in your car. And unfortunately, you can sleep in your car. It's not comfortable. Uh, you know, hopefully you don't have to do that. But you're you're seeing more delinquencies on kind of the uh the credit card side, you're seeing it, you know, on, on the lending side, you're seeing it in automobiles as well. Um, but you're not seeing as much in the mortgage market, and maybe it is some of that embedded gain that you're seeing there. But really, the levels we see are consistent with just a mild slowdown. Now, the problem is these are delinquencies. They can turn default. So you've got to model it. You know, again, this isn't a point estimate. You got to do scenarios to say, OK, what does it look like? And so you're seeing a slowdown there. But when we look at the other side of the equation, if you look at consumption data, it's still relatively strong. And so the speculation is that, OK, they're levered up, they're using credit cards. But if you actually look at the balance sheet of the consumer, it's not that bad. The consumer has delivered because they've had asset growth, they've had it in the house market. Remember, more people in this country own houses than own financial assets, right? Yes, there's some pain in markets. And I've had this weird theory this year and again, can't prove it. So I'll say it's absolutely true. Um, You know, it's it's a postulate then, right? Um, But the thing about it is, is that if you look at money flow, once again, I keep coming back to this because I think it's very important for for your listeners today, is that we saw flows out of equities. We saw flows out of bonds, but we didn't see really inflows in many places. They didn't go to money market. It may have went to cash, cash. Uh, You don't see it. I think it went to spending. I think part of that was there. So I think some of it is because, look, we've done well in financial markets. You know what? Let me t- harvest some escape and go do something with it. The revenge travel is, yeah. is the phrase people use. And look, airline prices are gouging again. We're booking flights. And I'm, I'm looking at some of these prices and I'm like, oh, what is this this number? And they're doing it again because it's that last holiday season. What we've seen is just really that the consumer has stayed somewhat relevant here. Now you look at wage growth, you look at financial assets down, you kind of lend yourself on that side to say, okay, they're borrowing money to do it. But they had high savings rates, right? Some of that money did get saved. We saw that in the pandemic. Now savings rates are very low, but it's not the amount of savings. It's the rate. You know, we're getting mixed signals. And that's why it's not we're not confident in the recession. It looks more recessionary but there's still the chance. The consumers has been resenting. look at PCE, it keeps getting updated. Personal consumption expenditures continue to get revised upward. We probably get a GDP print, feel like a GDP now, it's probably two and a half for the quarter. So all of a sudden we're out of that hole we had for the first two quarters of the year. Now, some of that's going to be government spending, you know, and it's the Inflation Reduction Act, which we're, we scratch our heads on how, how spending money reduces inflation. But, you know, it's the government. What you, you have to look at is the big picture of all of it. Inside that structured space, you're seeing, you know, signs of weakness, but that's where the, the spreads have moved out. They kind of more than compensate for that today. They're not priced for a specific hard landing scenario, but they are definitely priced for the slowdown in a mild recession, which gives us confidence in it. And if you compare it with something that works, you know, as I said, like the duration side, like real duration in treasuries, if we're getting that slowdown, I just I have to believe that that side of the the portfolio works again. It seems like the U.S. is
0: better than everywhere else. Right. I mean, we're kind of taking our medicine now. We have a more dynamic, innovative economy. The consumer yeah, there are some more delinquencies, as you said, but, you know, it's a pretty good starting point, right? They, they were flush with cash. You know, the Fed has a dual mandate and they don't have a third or fourth and they don't care about other people's currencies. Nope. They don't care. Our, cur- our currency, your problem. Exactly. Exactly. And so you're seeing these things like, gosh, what's happening over in the UK and their pension system. You're hearing stories about. BOJ selling treasuries to support the yen. Are there things exogenous to the U.S. economy that we need to be worried about here in the U.S.? Like, is there is there a death spiral or feedback loop that is a tail risk that if we just look at the U.S., we're not picking up?
1: Definitely the currency can be a problem. And I think, you know, you get like a 120 Dixie. I think that's a big problem for emerging markets. It depends on how you finance your your debt, right? So if you use external financing, meaning you, you finance in dollars, and let's say you generate Peruvian sol. You know, I guess that's pegged. That's not a good, that's not a good one. But the Chilean peso, let's say, right? That's a problem, right? If you're going to invest in those areas, I think you're going to be cognizant of, can they generate dollars to finance that dollar debt? And and so that's a problem. But remember, Greg, we haven't even talked about quantitative tightening, right? That's another thing that's sucking liquidity out of the system. And they're doing it at roughly 2X the rate they were doing in the last cycle. And they're not even talking about it, right? I mean, there was not one single question at the last press conference about it. Everyone was so focused on the rates and the dot plots. So this is part of the design of stripping the liquidity out. But you're right. I mean, Europe is definitely in a recession. How bad that gets, I think, is all predicated on the weather, which is really a a dangerous variable to try to forecast. Remember, I was at Florida State. They wanted me to model hurricanes. You know, I was like, I I don't understand fluid dynamics. I I couldn't even get to the basic dynamics. So not not alone that that part. The, The thing about it is if they have a really rough winter, I mean, they have storage capacity almost full. can draw some of that down but i mean natural gas prices could go up 5x there which will bleed back to us a little bit so the old saying was that when the u.s sneezes the world catches the cold i don't think the world can catch the cold and we can still perform because it's still so intertwined so i think at some point there needs to be a recognition of the strength of the currency that it is derailing the rest of the world but there's another way to do that and the rest of the world can catch up to our policy and you know look europe has an inflation problem right? Their inflation problem is is worse than ours. Guess what? Their target rate at their central bank is massively lower than ours. So part of that, and the BOJ, when you talk about the BOJ, they haven't raised rates at all. They don't have an inflation problem, so they don't want to do it. That's why their currency is down like 25% year to date, because there has to be a release mechanism. I, I think the Fed understands that. I think, you know, the exogenous effect, you know, we're not importing a lot of that stuff that's in fact we're, we're actually exporting inflation right the goods we produce are much more expensive for them so we're actually giving these other people inflation too. and a lot of commodities are priced in dollars that's right and that's what that's one thing that's very interesting to us is with the, how strong the dollar has been this year just how well commodities have hung in there. And it just shows you the imbalance. It truly is a supply and demand. And there's been supply shortages. There's been underinvestment for so long. I still think the commodities can have a decent place in your portfolio today. I think the oil market is one that you, you should own. Uh, but you know structurally, you should own industrial metals as well, because they've been massively you know, just underinvested in for the last decade. But if you think about what's exogenous there, I don't think of it as like market-based risk. I think it's the geopolitical side right and we've seen that it's you know we've created tensions you know with trade you know with our policies you know I see Biden threaten Saudi Arabia for what they do with OPEC it's like give me a break you know what you you took credit for oil prices going down because you drew some out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve if that doesn't do anything and OPEC just backing off I mean look we're gonna have hundred dollar oil it's probably where it goes and that's what they want and guess what we also make money off that this big thing called Texas you ever heard of that place They, they produce a little bit of oil actually California California does produce a lot of oil, and people don't know that, um, or they forget about that. So we generate a lot of money through the energy complex as well. So that's why I said there's going to be winners and losers with all of this. I just think the exogenous stuff is more geopolitical and stuff that's really beyond our control. At some point, they will have to intervene on the dollar. They're going to have to get together. And I think what the Fed's trying to do by saying our currency, your problem, you get on the hiking regime with us. Yeah, that's what they're trying to signal to the market. And if they don't, we're going to have to do something. It doesn't mean a Fed pivot. Maybe it's the kumbaya, you know, there's the accords we've had over the years, but something we'll have to give because we can't just we can't for years say our currency, your problem. And some of it like for the UK. As an example, you can't cut taxes and try to fight inflation. It's really hard to do that. Right. And, you know, what you need to do is slow down the demand side. But also, you know, I mean, like you guys do a lot of this work in LDI, right? It's the LDI that's causing the problem. And LDI stands for liability-driven investing. It's matching, you know, your liabilities with a lot of your bond return streams. But if you look in the UK, they have very long lives and they all buy the same bonds. They all buy inflation. They're called link. They're guilt linkers, right? They're linked to inflation. And they lever the trade. So, you know, the bad and the why did they lever the trade? Well, that's that's for, you know, a different discussion. But a lot of it was like when when rates come down, you have a problem, right? Because your the present value of your liabilities goes up. So, again, math, it's it's everywhere, right? Uh, But what happens is that when you have this big sell off, all of a sudden they owe on that kind of levered trade. And so they got margin called. That's effectively what happened. And then they needed to do some form of intervention, but they need to back off the policy. Right. See, and trust won't back down. And see, this is just this weird thing. And with their new head of the, I can never say, the chancellor of the exec, exec check your, I, I don't know how to say the word. It, it's Again, it, it's one of those complicated it's, British words. Yeah. So. But they're, they're just going with policies that are so 2020. And the market says, no way. We need to fight inflation. The rest of the world is doing so. You've got to get on board. If not, we're going to punish your bonds. We're going to punish your currency. And that's exactly what happened. But why did it happen Too, they own other assets, they need to turn them in back into British pound. Um, And so you sell treasuries, just like you were talking with the BOJ, you sell it, you turn it back into yen to try to protect your currency. But there's another way to protect it. It's to not follow the policies the market doesn't like fight inflation, and you need to hike rates, you got to get on board with they slow down. And that's part of the punishment in the currency. It's a complicated subject and I'm profess to be an expert in it. But again, talking with our global team, um, you know, I got some good insight there. And I, I think the dynamic has changed. And, and one of our PMs just put out a good paper on this. And I, I encourage anyone to go to the DoubleLine website and, and download it or reach out to us and we'll send you one. But I did a lot of good work here. And it's just saying that what's changed in the market is the way we think about inflation, the policies we pursue, and we're not going to pursue debt finance schemes. And I can use scheme in a positive way, because we're talking about the UK, right? I always thought it's funny that their pensions are called pension schemes. Schemes, Uh, yeah. yeah. And to me, I always feel like scheme is sleazy. Like Ponzi schemes. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. But the unique problem to there, but the rest of the world should watch it. Because I think it's set up to say, if you're not going to fight inflation, and you want to pursue these policies of debt financing, they're not going to be rewarded. They were rewarded for the last decade. Yeah. No longer. You know, it's funny. It feels like the 80s are back, whether it's, you know, Stranger Things or, you
0: know, some of the songs from Stranger Things coming back up the charts. Top Gun is back. It feels like the Bond vigilante is back and probably haven't seen the
1: Bond vigilante
0: since the 80s. So
1: it's. You're the first person that I've heard actually say that. Um, you know, so so kudos for that. Um, but you, this, you can use it on your show. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just steal it and 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 not attribute it. But no, no, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I'd always give you credit, Greg. But I think the, the thing about it is is that we go through cycles, right? There's people think of these like 17 year waves, and you know why that I don't know. It just kind of seems to be generation, right? If you think about kind of the new generation, and so there's a lot in the How and Strauss book about the fourth turning. Yeah, You know, we have a lot of similarities in this generation now to the 80s generation. And there's it's it's cycles that we go through of this stuff. Maybe it is a market cycle as well. But that's why I think we're going to define the turning point as being the pandemic. You usually need a catalyst. We had the GFC as one. Yeah, the tech, you know, I'm, I'm defining them in market recessions. But those kind of are turning points in markets. And it changes thinking as well. You have to adapt. You have to kind of analyze things. And you also have to be a student of history because you're right. There are many similarities to the 80s. You listen to Brainerd's speech earlier in the week. She really wanted to draw the parallel to the early 80s, not the 70s, because she doesn't want to talk about the acceleration of inflation. She wants to talk about fighting it. But I think there is a lot of parallel. Well, at least the music was good in the 80s and 70s. Maybe we'll get a revival in music. You know, if we can get some hair bands back, it'd be awesome, you know? I Uh, agree. You know, when I was a child and listening to that music, I I was always scared of it. Like these guys with makeup, this big hair, and You had all these like, you know, like skulls and all this crazy stuff. And you listen to the lyrics these days and it's like, it was such soft music. It's great music. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying it wasn't this fear and everything, this persona they had. They were just pretty guys, you know, having a good time. Now they're 70 and they're still touring. And and they still kick ass. A couple
0: important questions for you. Do you have to be named a Jeffrey to be in a senior role at Double One?
1: No, we do have five, you know, uh, Jeffreys, though. But it's not the most popular name. What is the most popular? Name? I believe it's Mike. There's a lot of Sams. Uh, there's a lot of Mikes. We do have a lot of redundancy in names, so that's why I, I don't usually go by Jeffrey. I just go by Sherman. There's only one Sherman there. So I've always been called Sherman most of my life. So your middle name is not
0: Jeffrey. Like right? you didn't change your name. Like your name's really Bob or Jack, and you just like, hey, I want to be Jeffrey because <laughs> I want to
1: move up. Jeffrey never has called me. Je- See, I call Jeffrey Gunley. I call him Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Um, he's never called me Jeffrey. There's a funny little thing that I had in my life when I, when I first was working with him and right up in the elevator. And so I'd say to him, Jeffrey, and he goes, Sherman. I always find it would be weird because that's my name, Jeffrey Sherman. Right. But it's just kind of this thing out there that the people pe- people do glom onto that. And I have another Jeffrey on my team, Jeffrey Mayberry. And he's one of the portfolio managers that works on a on macro team. So we have we have a fair amount uh, across the front. I work very closely with another Greg. We share the same birthday. Different year. Whoa. So that's, yeah. A, yeah. We celebrate birthdays and we have like a Pizza Friday and now it's Pizza Thursday. We've had to change with the pandemic. You know, people don't want to come in on Fridays as much. Pizza Thursday. But I'm always amazed when you look at the birthday game, right? How many people you need to share the same birthday. And it, it's lumpy when you look at it too. And, uh, we call them twinsies. If you had the same birthday, you're twinsies. At gotcha. No one. Yeah. Gotcha. So I have a twinsie. I don't know if any have the same birthday and same name. I'll, we'll have to do some research. So I'll ask one analyst to do that. What is the probability of that? Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've been out of the probability game too long to, to think about that because technically there's like an infinite number of names. It's also when you're born, right? Because Jeffrey in the 70s was a very popular name. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so we go through cycles of the naming. So I don't have to think through that one. So besides math, what are your other hobbies and interests? I like sports. I watch a lot of sports. Uh, I don't play a lot of sports because I'm getting older. And I just find that if I do anything, it kind of hurts me more than it helps me. I did pick up uh, golf during the pandemic just as something as an outlet where you could actually go outside. Yeah. It's something I find a little cathartic, even if I go out by myself. It's a frustrating game. But to me, it's a challenge. It's kind of like investing, right? Yeah. You're going to have your good days. You're going to have your bad days. You're going to have your blow up holes, I call them. I was talking to you know, one of my colleagues last night and I was like, you know, blow up hole. No, that's not too over like a double bogey. That, that's normal. You call them like fat tails. Yeah, it's a 12 on a par three. That's a blow up hole, you know. And and so I was I was talking with uh, one of my buddies I play with and I was like, "Man, I had a great round. If it wasn't for those blow up holes, I was like, that's a pretty evergreen statement, you know. So, you know, I like to get outside, you know, live, live kind of close to the beach and stuff. So just get some outdoor air and stuff like that. So I read a lot. We have to be consumers of content any book recommendations you'd make for listeners? Right now, it is the Bernstein book against the gods. I love that book. I mean, it's one of my favorites. I think it's pertinent right now, understanding risk. Don't blame the deities. Don't blame the exogenous. Blame yourself for getting lulled into looking at history. And right now we're having a shock relative to where we were. But if you were extrapolating what happened post-GFC, it's a shock to you. But if you look back all the way to the 80s, this isn't a shock to you. Right. It is, we know that this is part of the, the system. And at some point, it would change. It's just no one knew exactly that time when that tail risk showed up. And this isn't a black swan, right? And that's that's a relatively good book. I think you get the gist of it in about, I don't know, 20 pages. Though. Yeah. It seems a little redundant. No disrespect to Taleb there. But this isn't some exogenous thing. This was telegraphed. The problem with it is none of us know how far that the Fed was going to push and the ECB got on board. And so I think Against the Gods book is is probably one of the best ones if if your listeners haven't read that. A true classic. It's been out
0: forever and ever and it's still pertinent.
1: If they're going, gosh, who is this
0: Sherman and what is his show? Where can they find it?
1: You can find it on most podcast uh, servers. I'm not very good with all of this, but it's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud, the Google Play. It's on Stitcher, I think is one of those. And we have a YouTube channel. So if you want to see any of our content, youtube.com backslash double line capital. Some people think it's capital with a, C A P I T O L. No, we're huh. not the capital of capital. double line. Yeah. It's actually for money uh, capital. So double line capital behind the backslash after youtube.com. You'll see all of these as well. So. And a ton of content on your website as well yeah so we've been proud of that you know we're trying to find ways to communicate with folks right and you know we want to tell people we're not shy about our ideas we talk what we think about the markets and i always hate when someone says you talk your book yeah we talk our book because it's what we believe if we didn't we would move the book around right? right you move the position in the portfolio so we want people to understand our thinking understand why we're doing what we're doing and we want to try to help them navigate things. And look, it's been a rough year. And, um, you know, it, It's patience. I, you know, One of my PMs said the other day, he goes, at this point in 12 months, people are going to be FOMOing over bonds. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, they're going to have the fear that they regret missing out on some of this opportunity. And I think that the markets are positioned for that right now. And I think they give you opportunity. And I think you can do equity-like returns with credit. And so to us, that's an important thing in this part of the cycle. You can find us at DoubleLine.com. There's a lot of content on there, and we're very proud of it. Bon FOMO. You
0: heard it here first. If you want to hear it again, go to their website or any of their podcast locations like Stitcher. All right. Well, Jeffrey, or as the other Jeffrey calls you, Sherman, thank you very much. This has been a great podcast, and I've learned a lot. Yeah,
1: well, it's
2: great to see you in person and being in your office today. All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Take care. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property, no portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2022 Double Line Capital.